You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Amen. Thank you, Keisha and Jim and worship team and Jeff, everyone who has had a role so far this morning. Um, It's great to be here. I'm so grateful the Lord held the rain off. And grateful that you are willing to, you were willing to come and take a chance. Following up what Keisha talked about meeting, uh, our elders were going to today begin to talk about our move back inside in December. And then, of course, we've had quite the spike this week uh, in coronavirus cases. So we're going to be talking about it this Wednesday at our meeting and We'll give you an update as soon as possible. We want to do everything we can to meet together, and we want to also be as safe as possible. I was counting up. We've had at least 10 people in our congregation, never anybody who was here, but 10 people in our congregation to have COVID, and it's no joke uh, for the people who have had it, or for several of them. Some, it wasn't so bad. Um, In a day, and... and, and (laughs) Isn't COVID a big part of this? But in a day when Americans are so divided, when outrage is just below the surface, when tensions are high and nerves are on edge, I wanted to begin today's message with the thought with which we can all agree, and here it is. The world has gone crazy. Especially the other side. Not only that, but I can tell you where it all went wrong. It's when the... Di- I mean, when the repu- no, the world went crazy when Eve ate the forbidden fruit and then gave some to her silent and approving husband, Adam. Now, if Eve was the first to openly disobey the Lord, then why is it that Adam gets the blame? It's because Adam was the first created and he was appointed vice regent over all of God's created earth and so consequently he was held accountable maybe uh, as adam sat and witnessed the 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 conversation and he heard the conversation between eve and the serpent who knows this is speculation but maybe he said something like well i'm just going to see what happens let's see if indeed disobedience results in death let's see if god strikes her down i'm sure he'll give me another one i, I don't you think he'll Maybe not. Maybe that's not what Adam was thinking. But it wasn't him who was on the line. It was Eve who was eating the fruit. When he saw that nothing happened to her, he took up the fruit and ate, and their eyes were opened. Since the earliest days of creation, God has had his representatives on earth, his people. Because of sin, God's people are are often not the examples that you would have chosen had you been in charge. Furthermore, God's people sometimes feel far too comfortable in this world and thus act as if this world is all there is. When this happens, we begin to think that worldly attitudes and solutions to the problems that we face are the only ones because... Right here and now is all that really matters. But we were designed 
not to, in fact, seek worldly solutions to worldly problems, even though that would seem to make perfect sense. We are not to live like the world. We don't think like the world, exactly like the world does on all things political and otherwise, or we're not supposed to anyway. So if we do, though, what do we have to offer the world that is different? If we're just like them with a little bit of spirituality thrown in, do we really have anything to offer in a world that is in crisis when everything is on the line? Just like Jim said, it's always been that way. We're called, we are called, brothers and sisters, to live in community with one another in such a way that the world will take notice and ask questions. And at first, the questions may sound hostile, but you never know what's going on in a person's mind. They may be in the process of being drawn to Jesus. Our text today is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. It's, it's part three of a message titled, A Living and Loving Sacrifice, taken from Romans 12, verses 1 to 13. The love to which we are called in verses 9 to 13 of Romans 12 is a sacrificial love, just like we're taught at the first, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Then we are called to love in that way as well. The teaching about spiritual gifts in Romans 12 verses 3 to 8 follows quite a pattern. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's this conversation that Paul uh, engages with the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. And then he goes immediately into 1 Corinthians 13. Same thing in Ephesians 4. The gifts are given. And then he says, when, when the body is functioning according to design, well, it builds itself up in love. So, Romans 12, verses 9 to 13. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Shake around a little bit if you've been sitting there for a while and you need to wake up. I don't want to have to holler real loud and wake anybody up. So, Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality word of God for the people of God thank you and be seated there is one word that kept coming to my mind over and over and over it would come to me as I read through and studied this text it's the word intentionality walking according to the spirit does not mean Passively yielding your mind and body to the Lord and letting Him control you as if you're in some sort of a trance, like a marionette with a puppet, and you're just sort of being moved this way and that way. It is to actively engage 
the word of God. It's to actively love those in the body and love and bless those outside of the church, even those who would persecute us. That's not happening. This is not going to happen apart from intentional obedience to God's word. The cost is too high or it can become too high over time. The passage begins by saying, let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. You notice that love always finds its way into one of Paul's list of of Christian virtues. And it's always either at the first or at the end. Why? Well, love is the pinnacle of a believer's devotion to God which reveals itself in love for others. It's not to be practiced as though practiced as though we are actors on a stage, but with genuine affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, don't get too comfortable with the Christian smile. You know what it is, don't you? You're like this, coming to church, and then you get there and it's like, hello, brother and sister. Now, don't be like that. Let love be genuine. Affection, though, is not meant to imply a sentimentality that it indiscriminately accepts any and all activities and behavior in the church. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Hate what is evil. Love the good. Hate the evil. Love the good. Notice this does not say, as so many are tempted today, hate those who are evil. Love those who are on your side. Remember, Christ died for the ungodly. And it wasn't that long ago that we were numbered among the ungodly. Then Jesus cleaned us up. As Jesus' followers, we need to learn to hate the things that he hates. And to cling to the things that he loves. How do we know what, which is which? Well, fortunately... We have the Holy Spirit of God in us enlightening our minds by the Word of God. The Word of God, by the way, that He wrote. You cannot separate the Holy Spirit from His Word. The Spirit will not work apart from the Word. The Word is meaningless unless the Spirit is bringing life to it in our hearts and minds. But we have the Holy Spirit helping us to understand the Word of God. And so we're able to discern between good and evil. So, as I sit among you asking this question to myself as well as to you, what sin or sins do you love? Has your Christian liberty allowed you or or enabled you to go further than you should in what you watch or where you go or what you say? Perhaps an acceptable thing has turned into an idol and can no longer be righteously uh, considered good. Such as alcohol use or social media engagement or you write the list. What good and godly thing do you despise? Wow, that's a harsh word, isn't it? What good and godly thing? Well, what good and godly thing just doesn't seem that important to you. 
Are you bored with Bible reading or weary from fellowshipping with other believers? Probably not. I, I doubt. So. Look, you're here on a windy Sunday, uh, Sunday morning sitting in a lawn chair. So probably that doesn't apply to most of you. But it's easy, though, for our grip to slip from the good that draws us closer to Jesus because we so desire to participate in all this world has to offer and to participate in the things that the world loves. And so consequently, we're distracted. We're so distracted that we're not clinging to the good. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So may I ask, as I've asked myself this week, how do you spend your time? Does your time on social media make you wiser? Or is it only increasing your knowledge about others' lives and that not in a helpful way? How is your heart when you've had your time on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? Are you wiser or possibly even somehow more foolish? It's like I heard this guy say one time, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, and every one of us is ignorant for having heard it. That's the way it feels sometimes when you come off of social media, doesn't it? In preparation for the writing of his book, Live Not by Lies, that I referenced a few weeks ago, Rod Dreyer interviewed the Benda family in Prague, Czechoslovakia it was at the time, that had endured years of totalitarian rule under communist Russia. To combat the soul-draining effects of their circumstances, Camilla Benda would read to her children while her husband was in jail. She would read to her children two to three hours Every day. Dreyer asked them every day. And the, and the kids who were now adults said yes. Every day. And there was one novel that she read more than any other to them. It was Lord of the Rings. Because the Bendas knew. That Mordor. Is real. Dreyer differentiates between totalitarian rule and dictatorship. In this way, dictators, dictators want your compliance. Totalitarians want your soul. It's not enough to do the right thing. You must believe and celebrate what the state determines to be right. Totalitarians want you to agree with them about what is evil and what is good. Although we are aware that it is highly unlikely that at any time in our nation's history has a majority of people believed the gospel. The gospel had free reign in a lot of times in, in, in America, but it was twisted often. It was all about doing the right thing, doing good things. It wasn't about the fact that we can't do anything to get to heaven, but only based on what Jesus has done and our belief in that are we saved. But... Still, there was a time as we do a post-mortem analysis of why America is now a post-Christian state. There's a time when we remember when the church and believers were at least given 
a level of respect that allowed them to speak. But now as we look back, what happened in our land? We may be startled to discover, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm right about this, but could it be that we are now in post-Christian America primarily because of believers' inability to distinguish between good and evil? The Greek word for evil, panipas, indicates active wickedness, not something that is simply morally inferior, but a willingness to participate in the most heinous activities. Are we any longer capable of distinguishing between good and evil? Do we care to, or is it just easier to accept the culture's assessment of what is good and what is evil? I wonder if our willingness to be interrupted at any time with text and updates and phone calls and 24-hour news cycles hampers our ability to discern. Perhaps reading the classics would help. And if you're not a reader, for motivation, you might try Alan Jacobs' The Pleasures of Reading in a Distracted Age. There's only one chapter in that book, so you might be able to hang with it. Unfortunately, it's a 171-page chapter. <laughs> I thought that's the funniest thing. This man's got this chapter that's 170. I'm like, whoa, this is a short book, 171 pages short. Jacob's book, though, is far more likely to help erstwhile readers return to the discipline in which they once delighted. And is that you? Maybe you used to love to read, but you just don't have time for it anymore. The day my life changed was the day in the mountains in Plumtree, North Carolina, that we got direct TV. That's when my life changed. And it's a struggle ever since to get back to reading the way that I used to read. In verse 10 of our text, but, but let me just say this about that. Reading good literature will help you in the same, not in the same way Scripture does, but it will help you in your discernment of good and evil. In verse 10 of our text, Paul encourages believers to love one another with brotherly affection. One another is a clue that Paul is speaking to those within the church Youth uh, group, the, the student ministry has been talking about the one another's of the New Testament for a long time this year. The church is more than a social club. It's a family. And like any family, we need to be reminded that love keeps us together. That is not a shout, shout out to Captain and Tennille. That's truly love. That's true. Love is what keeps us together even though our differences may challenge our temporary affection for one another. The family, this family, is not dependent on natural or ethnic bonds. All love that is true, though, doesn't just happen. All love that is true is sacrificial. There is no way to go through family life without Adam, the Adam that lives in all of us, rearing his head and loving self more than others. And that's why we're called to surrender our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
When you read the New Testament in large chunks, and if you've never done this before, this may shock you. But when you read it in large chunks, you realize that pleasing God has far more to do with loving your fellow believer than it does with developing a great division or great vision, not division, great vision and or accomplishing great things for God. More than anything else, he expects us to love each other. And then everything else flows from that. We miss the first part. We miss the foundation of loving one another like we should. The evangelism, the outreach, the, 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 the justice ministries that we do all sort of fall apart. But when we come from the strengthened community that God has designed, great things can happen. How far are we to go in loving others? We are to outdo one another in showing honor. Is this a Philippians 2, 3 to 4 idea of preferring others' interest above our own? Or is it a competition of sorts? If it is a competition, it's not so in the normal use of the, uh, of the word. This idea is everywhere in the New Testament. Do not exalt yourself, but rather humble yourself and the Lord will exalt you. Okay, good. I thought they were coming to remove me. I thought maybe I'd said something that was wrong. And um, they were going to say, okay, he's lost it. Time to, time to go. As for your responsibility to others, love them. Encourage them. Forgive them. Honor them. Verse 11 tells us not to be slothful in zeal. Again, intentionality. Are you busy? I know you are. You are busy. Are you at the same time, dare I ask, lazy? Is it possible to be zealous for the wrong things and thus be lazy about the things that truly matter? I've already mentioned Proverbs this morning. When you come to the wisdom book of Proverbs with a solid gospel focus, you're going to find a whole lot of help with this command to be zealous about the right things. The opposite of being slothful in zeal is to be fervent in the spirit. Now, most of the translations put spirit with a little s. That means they have determined that this is man's spirit rather than the Holy Spirit working in one's life. Literally, though, this could be translated, do not be slothful in zeal, be blazing in the spirit, and it seems best in context when you think about Romans 8, how we've learned that the only way to fulfill God's law is through the Holy Spirit's active presence in our lives. It's best to conclude that this is the Holy Spirit. Paul, again, is not promoting indiscriminate enthusiasm, but rather passionate service to the Lord, led and fueled by the Holy Spirit. When we think of serving the Lord, as encouraged at the end of verse 11, we tend to think about volunteering here or there to do something good that will bless our fellow human beings. But this isn't what Paul 
had in mind. This wasn't the image in Paul's mind when he wrote these words. He was thinking about slave, master. It was not, let me do my duty so that I can feel good about vegging with the show. But rather, what's next? I, I can't believe I have the privilege of serving my creator and redeemer. I delight to serve him who gave everything for me. Now, surely you will understand that I have mastered uh, this lifestyle myself or else I wouldn't preach this, right? <laughs> Wrong! Only as I allow, and it's been delightful to think about this, as I allow the Holy Spirit to blaze in me, is it possible to serve in this way? Verse 12 begins by saying that we should rejoice in hope. Throughout Romans, Paul has tied our hope to faith in the finished work of Christ, to Jesus' return, to eternal life with Jesus when we repent of our sins and trust his death on the cross as payment for our sins. This is not, I hope that I <laughs> have been good enough that God will allow me into heaven. It's, it's not, I hope that, that Christians won't suffer. Rather, it's an assurance that I will be with Jesus for eternity. And I can now rejoice because God is sovereign and all things truly work together for the good of his children who are being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. If we rejoice in hope, we will be more likely to be patient in tribulation. The word for tribulation indicates deep and serious trouble, not inconveniences that are our constant companion. Sooner or later, we all come to the place of deep trouble in our lives. And the appropriate response is not passive acceptance of God's will, although that it seems like it would be a good response to just say, okay, Lord, I, I take this from your hand. As Leon Morris states, we, re, we are to respond with an active, steadfast endurance. Only one who sees beyond this life will so live. Do you feel that it would just be impossible for you to handle your worst nightmare? I, I, I say this a lot, but new people are here, so I, I want to say it as an encouragement. It's, it seems to me most of the time that when you think, uh-oh, I wonder if God's preparing me for this, this, or this, it could be a really bad thing, that it never happens. It rarely happens. But when something bad comes into your life, you look back and you see how the road was paved for you to handle that. Only when we trust God for godly perseverance in our lives will we be able to respond in this way. To be patient in tribulation. What are we to do? The end of verse 12. Be constant in prayer. I've told you multiple times that prayer is the most difficult spiritual discipline for me. Well, guess what? I don't get points simply because I acknowledge my weakness. I'm called to pray in this way. Anyway. Prayer that pleases the Lord reminds me that I am not in charge. God is. 
I say prayer that pleases God because I, I and I imagine many of you are quite capable of <clears throat> praying as a spiritual discipline uh, that is really only primarily to check off a list. It's a good thing to pray in a disciplined manner, but it, it, it cannot strictly be about performance. Godly perseverance, though, is commended. All right, before something blows away, let me finish quickly. Verse 13 tells us to care for believers and non-believers alike. We get the first part, <clears throat> contribute to the needs of the saint, saints. But what about the second? Seek to show hospitality. How is that referring to non-believers? We'll get there in a moment. It's difficult for a lot of believers to embrace God's design for us to care first about the family of God before tending to those outside the body. <clears throat> if this thing goes, I'm going to be like Cluzo and say, The horseshoe blows! We live with our own families as if we have to take care of them first before we take care of others. But we also tend to think, well, church people should understand. I'm trying to help those that don't know Jesus. And if I minister to them instead of the people in the church, maybe they'll come to Christ. Maybe they'll believe. While such a sentiment may seem noble, it, it's, it's not just wrong, it's unbiblical. Perhaps we don't see church as a family in the same way God sees us as his family. We may be too busy trying to promote our personal brand to recognize that the problems we ignore inside the church make our appeals to the lost hollow at best and extremely counterproductive at worst. In an increasingly post-Christian culture, our best argument for God when, is when the world observes the way we quietly care for one another and then we go about our business caring for the world also in a quiet manner. We have, you don't want to hear this, but, but it's true and you know it. You know it in your soul. We have, by and large, lost the argument in the public square. Although we must continue to skillfully promote Jesus and the gospel whenever the opportunities arise in said theater. We, what we must not do is to promote self under the guise of promoting Jesus. Hoping that others will see the sense of our arguments and believe. It's far more likely that they will see our sacrificial love for one another. And desire to be part of a family such as ours, even if it means giving up membership in a highly esteemed secular club. Belonging to clubs like that always comes with a steep price. If love is given freely here, do you think that ought to be attractive? The, this principle of first taking care of church family is seen over and over and over in the New Testament. It's a reason our benevolence team ministers first to those in our body who are in need, then to those outside of the church. It doesn't keep us from going outside, but we, we take care of family first and then we move outside. Same with our buddy teams. Same 
with our deacons serving other servants at Grace who look after the needs of the people inside the church before seeking to serve those outside the church. So does that mean we should stop at the door and never look outside the family to serve? My goodness, no! A healthy family will always help others in the community. And such outreach is the focus of the last command we're going to think about this morning. Seek to show hospitality. This final word in our text carries the literal sense of pursuing the love of strangers. It's not translated like that, but that's what it means literally in the Greek. Pursue the love of strangers or love strangers and pursue them. Once again, intentionality. You probably know that it was undesirable, even dangerous, for travelers to stay in hotels or inns during the first century. To open your home to travelers was highly valued by others in society. It's like Tom and Michelle Rogers, these guys open their home to travelers. Can You've got to admire that. You have to respect that about Tom and Michelle. Look, the offer of hot food and a warm bed in a family setting was as appealing then as it is now, if not more so. The command of hospitality is not simply to accept opportunities as they arise. But hospitality... The love of strangers, those outside the family, is to be pursued aggressively. If in the first century someone said to you, hey, there's a businessman for Antioch looking for a place to stay, you, you wouldn't say, this command keeps you from saying, well, all right, I guess if you can't find any place else, just bring them on over here. We'll take care of them for tonight. Really hate to miss our show, but we'll go ahead and do it anyway. Can't find it. Rather, your response would be, hey, I heard about that. I was just on my way to the city square to invite them to come home with us. This was, by the way, one of the primary ways the gospel was spread in the first century. Now, it's highly unlikely that any of you will go to the village square this afternoon and see if there's anybody you can invite home for the night. But you could surely invite neighbors and co-workers for dinner. If you do, though, be careful how you share the gospel. Look, don't be just looking for an opportunity to jump in and say, now that we've finished dinner, may I share the Roman road with you? After that, we'll have dessert, okay? Even though we're in a post-Christian society, it's recently post-Christian. And there's still a trace of gospel memory in the culture. Your friends may suspect that you are seeking their conversion as a conquest if you're too aggressive in sharing the gospel. But if you show hospitality that is infused with the love of Christ, you're being used by the Lord to point them to Jesus. You cannot remain silent forever. Surely you must share the gospel because if they don't hear, they can't be saved. But they know more about it than you think they do, probably. And look for opportunities to just talk about how this is my life. This is what God has done for me. So a Romans 12, 13 style hospitality is part and parcel of sharing Jesus to those who do not believe.
So we've come to the end of the text, and I know that some of you are thinking, oh, man, I love being smacked around like this. Can't we go a little bit? More conviction, please. Or it could be that you're truly encouraged because if Jesus lives in us, if, if the Holy Spirit lives in us, we want to live like this. This is who we want to be. And when we're told that the Holy Spirit of God makes this possible, that's encouraging. Isn't it interesting as we think back this morning on what's been said already? That the blazing of the Spirit may begin when we intentionally tamp down the busyness of our 21st century lives long enough to hear from God in His Word. Sometime this week, I want to encourage you to take an extended time to be quiet and just to sit with Romans 12, the whole chapter. It's taken us four weeks to cover this chapter, and we moved around a bit, but I think you're going to find that time profitable. I doubt that you have a lot of quiet in your life. If you're a mother with small children, you really, it's going to be a challenge. As we pray at the end, pray for those mothers to find that time. Move your phone to another room. Turn off the ringer. I, I realize you can't turn off your two-year-old. But turn off the ringer to your phone. And seek as much quiet as possible. And deliberately work your way through Romans 12. As the Holy Spirit shapes and molds you into the image of of God's Son, Jesus, according to the Father's great and wonderful plan. I sense that the comments in the last month or so about preparing for persecution have been difficult for some of you. If you look closely, you'll see, oh, oh it, it, this is true. God puts us in the times that he does for his reasons to glorify him. And family becomes more and more important. And you do what God has called you to do. You let him worry about taking care of you. He's going to take care of you. He loves you. He loves this family. Let love be sincere, genuine, without hypocrisy. As we obey all of these commands of the Lord that are so beautifully given to us in, 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 with the privilege of serving one another and serving Him at the same time. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for allowing us to have this entire service without rain, without the wind blowing anything or anybody away. And by moving in our midst with the Holy Spirit, just like Keisha said, just as this wind blows, the Holy Spirit moves among us and conforms us to the image of Jesus. May it be our heart's desire and our heart's cry even. Make me like Jesus.
And as we are more like him, we will love one another with that sincere love. And we will never, ever stop caring about the world, knowing that Christ died for sinners of whom we were and still are until the day we see Jesus, but not in the same category that we used to be. It's like Paul said, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yes, we acknowledge that, but we also acknowledge that when you look at us, you see Jesus and you're pleased. So Lord, may we live lives that are intentionally designed to please you. May it be with structure or may it be with more awareness of you speaking to us. And, and, and Lord, help us to be quiet that we might hear from you and obey. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.